Folks, welcome to this week's episode of Roundabout Sports. As you can tell, I am excited. My name is Jeremy Carp. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're watching at home, on your phone, on your computer, wherever you may be, no matter how you are listening. Thank you so much. It is a great pleasure as always. I'm telling you, I am so hyped right now. Why? Why wouldn't I be? Albert Pujols is back with the Cardinals. And I know people, and I said this last night on the Wrestle Talk podcast, people have been complaining about it nonstop. There's no reason to. This is a very historic moment. You have Albert Pujols, you have Yadier Molina, you have Adam Wainwright reuniting, and this is their swan song. All three of them are going to ride off into the sunset, hopefully with the World Series title in tow. But we'll see how that goes. But as you can tell, got the posters. This is great. Today we're going to have Bob Kendrick on. He's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Kansas City. I've been there with my dad multiple times. It is such an iconic place in historic Kansas City. And, you know, it's only getting bigger and better. They're really working on expanding the whole museum and the surrounding area around it. It is definitely a place you as a sports fan would want to check out. It's definitely on those bucket lists to go to. Um, and so we are going to have plenty to talk about. And on top of that, I'm going to test his knowledge a little bit about the history of the Negro leagues. I, I have some good, uh, some good trivia in mind. So we'll see how he does. Um, of course, be sure to advertise with us on interstate 70 sports media. If you want to, because we do support local, just direct message myself or Adam Frex of Talking Dynasty. You know, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter. My Twitter handle's right there, at jcarpsportsfans1. You can find us at Interstate 70 Sports Media on Twitter. This is on YouTube. You know, we're on Facebook with Roundabout Sports and Talking Dynasty and Interstate 70 Sports Media. We're growing every day, and we really want to help your business grow as well. So definitely be sure to check us out. Also later today, on this, or I should say, I guess later on this episode, uh, our Interstate 70 Sports Media Insider James Knox will be entering, and because he has a lot to tell us in addition to what's going on in Major League Baseball regarding Albert Pujols and what this final you know deal means with the Cardinals and some other interesting news across the state of Missouri. One piece I do want to get out there, you know, gotta as, as much as. It pains me to say it. I got to say it. The Jayhawks have had a hell of a run in, in the uh, March Madness. I tell you, um, a lot better than Mizzou. Want to know how? Uh, considering that Mizzou's never been in a Final Four and Kansas has been in a lot of them. Um, nevertheless, they got a battle this Saturday going up against number two ranked Villanova. So we will see how that goes for the Jayhawks. Meanwhile, the North Carolina Tar Heels and uh, the Duke Blue Devils will be going at it. And I tell you, I really wanted, really wanted St. Peter's to, to beat North Carolina. I figured, hell, my bracket was busted in the very first matchup when Kentucky lost. So we might as well have had the upset underdog go all the way. But like I said, you can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter, and yeah, that is the extent of all of that. Thank you all for tuning in. I will admit, out here in Missouri, it's been raining all day long, so we're going to make sure that uh, Mother Nature doesn't stop this show, but hopefully hopefully we keep going strong. All righty, so 
we'll tell you a little bit about the uh, the Negro Leagues um, Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Okay, so let me tell you something. It was it's in can it's in ugh, I can't even get my words out. It's in the historic 18th and Vine District in Kansas City, and it shares a building with actually the American Jazz Museum, which is another fantastic just facility to go to. I'm telling you. It is a privately funded museum, and it's dedicated to preserving the history of Negro League Baseball in America. And it was founded in 1990, so this is its, I believe, 32nd year. Um, and let me tell you, the collection they have in there, they have thousands of artifacts. And on top of that, one of the biggest attractions in there is they have this you know, style baseball, this replica baseball field with uh, bronze statues of Hall of Famers who also played in the Negro League, such as Jackie Robinson, Josh Gibson, um, Buck O'Neill, um, Larry Lester, um, and Satchel Page, to name a few. And, and, of course, we can't forget one of my favorites of all time, um cool papa bell you know definitely and then you got leon day oscar charles there's just so many um and you know there's just ugh, I, I can't do it justice i don't even know why i'm trying to especially when i have such an amazing guy um who's going to be on in just a couple seconds to tell us so much more about it and folks let me tell you it's definitely something you're going to want to visit. Put it on your list. Go down there. It's worth the trip. And it's time, I, I guess, I guess the stalling's over with. All right, folks. It's time I introduce our special guest for the evening. He's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Prior to that, he was the museum's first director of marketing. It was promoted to the vice president of marketing. He is also a member of the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. And I'm telling you, he has done so much to help preserve the legacy of the Negro Leagues and so much history of baseball in general. It is such a pleasure to have him on, especially as a guy like me who is just big on sports. So, folks, a big round of applause, a big welcome to Roundabout Sports, the one, the only, Bob Kendrick. Hey, what's up, Jeremy? How are you? I'm good, young man. How are you? I'm doing all right. First, thank you so much for being on. It is a great pleasure to have you on. It's my pleasure. Happy to be happy to be with you. So I'm repping my uh, the classic 19 shirt with all the uh, OG teams from the Negro Leagues on there. So, oh, very cool. I, I love it. Um, so I guess the first question I got to I'm going to ask you is, how long have you been in? the baseball preservation business? Well, I, I started as a volunteer with the museum in 1993. And like most folks, I really didn't know a whole lot, Jeremy, about the history of the Negro Leagues. I considered myself to be a baseball fan, but when I got introduced to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum way back in 1993, I quickly realized that I didn't know nearly as much about this game as I thought I may have known about this game, particularly coming from a fan's perspective. And 
I became enamored in it. I, it was literally love at first sight. Uh, the minute that I walked into that little one room office, that was then the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It's not what we see at historic 18th and Vine today. Our roots are very, very humbling. A uh, little one room office. And I went in there. I remember the late Don Motley, who was then the executive director of this fledgling museum known as the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I'm looking for it. And I walk in and I knock on the door and I, he looks up and I said, well, I'm looking for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He says, son, you're standing in it. And it was just this tiny one room office at that time. And uh, that was my introduction. And like I say, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the athletes who made this incredible story as well. And at that point, Jeremy, I just wanted to learn as much as I could, man. And, and I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody to feel that same passion, that same energy that I felt because this was literally an awakening. I'm like, how could I not know this? And, uh, and, and that's really what kind of sparked this widespread interest that I now, I didn't know in 1993 that I had just walked into what would become my passion. I had no idea. And I really had no idea that it would take me, lead me down a path that would become my profession. I saw, I didn't see that coming. Uh, I don't know if there's any way to see that coming. You know, at that point in time, I just wanted to be involved and support the museum in any way that I could. Fortunately for me, it turned into one of the most gratifying careers that I could have ever imagined. And it has allowed me to meet people that I I don't know if I could have ever possibly dreamt of having met. And, and of course, it connected me to the late, great Buck O'Neill. And it, it we formed a relationship and a bond that was special. And, and I think through that relationship, it opened up opportunities, again, that I still enjoy to this very day. You know, I've heard so many wonderful stories about meeting Buck O'Neill and how he was perhaps one of the most charitable baseball players and just enthusiastic ball players you could ever have the pleasure of meeting. What was one of your favorite stories just being around Buck O'Neill? There were, well, there's so many. And, and a lot of the stories that I share today are stories that he shared with me. And, but, you know, I think even more than the stories itself, it was his presence. He just had a spirit about him. And, and people oftentimes ask me what I remember most about Buck. And, and there's so many wonderful things so many car rides and plane rides and breakfast, lunch and dinner, we golf together. And the thing that strikes me the most is that you always felt better leaving Buck than you did when you came to see him. Not everyone strikes you in that manner. There was a certain level of energy that exuded from this man. And no matter how bad your day might be going, if Buck O'Neill walked into the room or you had an encounter with Buck O'Neill, 
you forgot about whatever those troubles were at that point in time. And, and that was the beauty of Buck. You know, like I said, I share so many of these stories. You know, one of my one of my favorite stories that I share all the time at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum with when folks come in to see us and we talk about some of the stories that he shared with me. And one of them is a story that he tells about the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. And Satchel had his Satchel Page All-Stars and they're playing in the Denver Post Tournament. Now the Denver Post Tournament, for those who may be hearing this for the first time, was the first organized baseball tournament to integrate. And so in 1934, they, a team called the House of David, and the House of David was an all-white religious sect based out of Benton Harbor, Michigan. And Jeremy, they were characterized by their very long hair and very long whiskers. Well, they were mimicking David from the Bible. And, and so they would spread their gospel by playing with and against Negro League teams. They would barnstorm all over the country with and against Negro League teams, most notably the Kansas City Monarchs. And so legend has it that the House of David decided to recruit Satchel Paige to pitch for them. Right. And so Satchel wanting to look like his white teammates. I tell people all the time, you can't make this stuff up. It's too good. Satchel wanted to look like his white teammates, put on a wig and a fake red beard and would strike out <laughs> 51 hitters in three games. And the House of David would win the $7,500 prize money. And you can rest assured that old Satchel got a large percentage of that $7,500 prize money. Well, I would hope okay, so. So now we fast, we fast forward. Satchel is back in the Denver Post Tournament, but this time he's in the Denver Post Tournament with his Satchel Page All-Stars. Buck O'Neill is playing first base for Satchel and his All-Stars. And so they're playing an all-white semi-pro team from the Coors Brewing Company. And so Buck says, Jeremy, the first kid gets into the batter's box. He digs in. Satchel throws him a fastball. Kid swung as hard as he could, topped it, dribbled it down the third base line. Well, it stays fair. He beats it out and he gets an infield hit. Well, Buck says, just about that time, one of the kids from the coolest dugout steps out on top of the dugout steps and he yells out, Les beat him. He ain't nothing but an overrated darky. Well, Satchel had a nickname for everybody. And his nickname famously, famously for Buck was Nancy, which is a whole nother story. But anyway, <laughs> Satchel looks over at first base. He says, Nancy, did you hear that? Buck said, yes, Satchel, I heard him. He said, Nancy, bring him in. And so Buck is at first base. He turns and he motions for the outfield to take a couple of steps in. Satchel looks over at first base. He says, Nancy, bring him all the way in. Honest to God's truth. There were seven guys kneeling around the mound. Satchel, Page, and the catcher and Satchel strikes out the side 
on nine straight pitches. He looks into the Coors dugout and says, overrated darky, hey. And of course, by now, the kid that said this was embarrassed, he was crying. All the guys came out to apologize to Satchel and his teammates. But Buck O'Neill swore to the day he died that if he had one game to win and any choice of any pitcher from any era, it would be the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. You know, it's, it's weird because that type of stuff almost sounds mythical and magical, those types of stories. Like Satchel Page going up there, striking him out on nine straight pitches. I mean, you know, 51 batters in three games. Like these are the type of, I think one of my favorite um, stories about Negro League ball player um, has to be uh, Cool Papa Bell. And I believe it was actually Satchel Page who had always told the story. You know, Cool Papa Bell was known for being super fast. And apparently... The story, I believe, goes about how he was so fast that uh, you could turn the light on and off and he'd be one side of the room to the other before by the time the switch <laughs> would be turned on and that, off. That's, that's pretty much it. Satchel said that. And yeah. that cool, cool was so fast that he could walk in a room, turn off the lights, get in bed, pull up the covers before the room went dark. And, and, and Jeremy, that is actually a true story. Now, what Satchel doesn't tell is what really happened because his friend Cool Papa Bell pulled wool over his eyes. And so Satchel and Cool were teammates on some of the greatest teams of all time, including briefly the 1935 Pittsburgh Crawfords, which some believe to be the greatest baseball team ever assembled. I kind of lean to the 31 Homestead Grays. But you could certainly make a case for the 35 Pittsburgh Crawfords, who did indeed have five future Hall of Famers playing at the same time. And so when they traveled, they were oftentimes roommates. So in this particular instance, Okul gets to the hotel room before Satchel does. He walks in the room, turns the light switch on. There's a delay before the light goes off, comes on. He turns the light switch off. There's a delay before the light goes off. And Okul says, "Uh uh-huh. When Satchel gets to the room, Cool is waiting on it. Roomy, (laughs) I'm so fast, I can flip this light switch off, run over, hop in bed, cover up before the room gets dark. And Satchel's like, well, Cool, man, you fast, but you ain't that fast. And so Cool Papa Bell bet his meal money. And old Satchel took the bait. And in one of the greatest sports pranks of all time, because that light had a shortage in it, Cool was able to flip the light switch off, run over, hop in bed, cover up before the room went completely dark. Satchel was so outdone that he just always told folks that Cool was that fast. But I can tell you this, Jeremy, you don't have to fictionalize the speed of Cool Papa Bell. Cool Papa Bell once stole 175 bases in a less than 200-game season. He twice, honest to God's truth, twice scored from first base on a bunt in exhibition games against Major League All-Stars. Yeah, twice. Yeah, they were playing in Mexico. And Buck O'Neill says that Cool goes from first to third so fast on a single 
that the Mexican team stopped the game in protest because they swore <laughs> he had cut across the diamond, that no man could get around the bases that fast. That was the legendary James Thomas Cool Papa Bell, without question, the greatest nickname in baseball history, bar none. Uh, he, yeah, I absolutely love reading about uh, Cool Papa Bell. I love the exhibits at the museum of them. And, you know, there's uh, and he has big roots here in St. Louis. I love, uh, there's a famous picture from, I believe right. it was the 19, either the eighties or the nineties where uh, Mike Shannon, legendary broadcaster is actually having uh, James cool Papa Bell as a guest in the broadcast booth. And he's having the pleasure of interviewing him. And of course this is in his, you know, his later years, but still it's just such a, it's a warm sight to see. And, you know, yeah, that story was definitely one that always had uh, caught my attention. Um, and so here's a question for you. You were talking about uh -huh. the uh, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Homestead Grays. Um, and who were the five Hall of Famers that were on? Um, I believe you said it was the... The great Pittsburgh Crawfords, or uh -huh. the 35 Pittsburgh Crawfords, yeah. Who were mm -hmm. those five Hall of Famers, and what, in your opinion, makes them considered to be the greatest assembled lineup of all time? Well, number one, you start with the fact that they had five future Hall of Famers in that lineup. That's that's pretty impressive. Uh, that lineup included Satchel Page, Judy Johnson, Oscar Charleston, Cool Papa Bell, and a guy named Josh Gibson. <laughs> it, it was indeed a dynamite team the 31 homestead grays though would rival that uh they had about five hall of famers including a six hall of famer in their owner manager um and cumberland posey cumberland posey holds the distinction of of a unique distinction of being in two sports halls of fame He's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame and the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. Cumberland Posey was an outstanding athlete himself. He owned the Homestead Grays, however, and so had uh, Vic Harris, who was up for induction in December, gotten in. Um, one other player that escapes from my eye now, but it would have given the Homestead Grays as many as eight Hall of Famers. You know, so... You know, I'm partisan to the 1942 Kansas City Monarchs, which was a dynamite team. And they had one of the greatest pitching staffs, not in black baseball history, but in baseball history. And led by Satchel Paige and Hilton Smith, uh, both in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, a player named Willard Brown is also in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, so this too, and... So this, too, was a dynamite team. And, of course, the jersey over my shoulder, Buck O'Neill, will be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He was a part of that great 1942 team as well, which he always said was his favorite team. But that's the beauty of baseball. You can always make these debates about who was the best, what team was the best. But I think both the 31 Homestead Grays, the 35 Pittsburgh Crawfords, the 42 Kansas City Monarchs would have rivaled those great Yankee teams of yesteryear 
it would have been interesting to see them all lace it up and go out there and compete. Uh, it, it would have been pretty special to see. You know, I had put, um, in fact, I have this because I have a whole bunch of trivia and interesting facts here of the Negro Leagues. Because uh-huh. I, I think, because for me, growing up a kid, I just love sports history, you know. So whether it was football history, baseball history, the Negro League, anything in general. Um, now, one of the most notable, and this one, I really want to get your thoughts on this statistic. So because the Negro Leagues had very little money at the time, records and statistics are very, you know, they vary, they're inaccurate. You know, it's a very hard, you know, piece to put together, puzzle to put together. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the most famous of all stats in Negro League baseball is the fact that legend has it that Josh Gibson hit over 800 home runs. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the research that you guys have done at the museum and based on just your own personal opinion of Josh Gibson, because we all know how phenomenal he was. And it's just unfortunate that he had died before he had that chance to play in major league baseball. Um, what, where do you stand on the whole Josh Gibson hitting 800 or more home runs? Oh, I, I stand with those who look at his records in their to tie, you know, in their total spectrum, you know, because what we saw when major league baseball recognized the Negro leagues as a major league is that they're only going to look at the official league games. Well, the home runs that Gibson hit was against all levels of competition, including major leaguers. Gibson lit everybody up. Jeremy, he, he didn't discriminate on who he hit home runs against. He hit home runs on everybody. The Negro Leagues, the Major Leagues, over in Latin America, it didn't matter. Wherever Josh played, Josh hit, and he hit the ball out the ballpark with regularity. And and so for me, what I remind people of is that they didn't ask to play in the Negro Leagues. They had to play in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, that's true. So for me, any home run the man ever hit, I don't care who it was against, they should be counted. But that's just one man's purview. And so they focused on the official Negro League. So the numbers won't be as gaudy. But when you start to look at the home runs per at bat, you get a true understanding of the kind of power that Gibson possessed. And so, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, and I, I agree. Like, I, you know, a lot of people said, uh, a lot of people, they say that Josh Gibson is considered the Black Babe Ruth. And some people will say, uh, to counter that, they'll be like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> Babe Ruth was the white Josh Gibson. Yeah. You know, because yeah. there were people that yeah. had the pleasure of seeing both of them play. Oh, yeah. And, and 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 that doesn't diminish anything from Ruth. No, Ruth it doesn't. Was great. Ruth was great, and we, you know, unfortunately, we have evidence of how great Ruth was. The players in the Negro Leagues, people didn't see them, you know, and the records, as you mentioned, they were kept, but they were lost over time, and so you only have these oral accounts of these legendary stars for the better part. Now, granted, 
Negro League historians have done a tremendous job of going back, unearthing this data to provide some kind of quantitative measure for those who need statistical compilation in order to accept how great these players were. And so what we've seen through the years is that it was only natural that these Negro League players would draw a comparison to their white major league counterparts. And it was just their way of trying to help people understand how good those Negro League players were. So that's why you'll see, you know, was he the white, was he the black Babe Ruth or was Ruth the white Josh Gibson kind of thing. Buck Leonard was compared to Luke Garrick. Uh, you know, so you're going to get that because you're trying to help people understand based on someone that they do know about. And, and so, and, and that's okay. You know, like I said, when I would hear Buck O'Neill describe Josh Gibson, and this is how he did it. He said that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one incredible package. So you have to understand that Josh Gibson wasn't just a great power hitter. Josh Gibson was a great hitter who had power. Yeah. So he hit for he hit for average and he hit for power. And what makes it even more phenomenal is Jeremy, he was doing it as a catcher. Catchers don't do that. That's why I think to me, there's no one to compare Gibson to uh, because he was playing the most physically demanding position on the field. And he was putting up incredible numbers you know, with a with a position that just again it beats your body up, and and he wasn't a good catcher. He was a great catcher, you know. So Gibson, and to me, is in a class by himself. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Now here's another interesting. Did you know that I put at the bottom of the screen? Um, because eventually, because soon we're going to get into some trivia because I'm going to test your knowledge about, uh, the Negro leagues history. And then I definitely want to hear more about some expansion plans that you guys have had for the museum and the, you know, the legends field behind it and everything. Cause I know, you know, especially in that historic district, there is so much more uh, exciting stuff in store, but, um, so first here's this interesting story. There was a time where Smokey Joe Williams <laughs> struck out 27 batters in a single game. Now, let's put this into perspective. That's the minimum number of batters you can face. And he struck out all of them. <laughs> like, yeah, Smokey Joe what? did strike out. He struck out 27 in the game. I think the game went into extra innings ended up beating uh, another legendary Negro League pitcher named Chet Brewer. Chet Brewer struck out 18 in that game. They were playing <laughs> <laughs> they were playing under the lights, uh, under the night lights that the that the Negro Leagues debuted, you know, five years. They five years before they were playing night games in the major leagues, they were playing them in the Negro Leagues and they were playing under the lights. And man, Smokey Joe and Chet Brewer were mowing them down Maybe they were having difficulty seeing that baseball under those lights, but it was a phenomenal uh, kind of pitching battle between two legendary pitchers. And of course, Smokey Joe Williams 
is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, his fastball was every bit the equal of Satchel. Some say he threw even harder than Satchel Paige. That that's absolutely wild to think about having to. I think one of my favorite uh, Major League Baseball equivalents is when um, with the Dean brothers, Paul and Dizzy, and um, Paul threw a, a no hitter in the first game of the doubleheader, and then uh, Dizzy threw a one hitter in the second one, and he said, "If I knew he was going to throw a no hitter, I would have thrown one too." <laughs> That uh, and see, that's the thing. Like, we don't get these types of stories in modern baseball. Like these these types of stories carry on decades later because the stuff we're talking about, the stories we're mentioning, happened. Gosh, you know, eighty if not longer years ago. Exactly. You know, exactly. and so for for you guys at the, that work at the. Negro League Baseball Museum to be able to preserve all of this history and not just the stories, but the artifacts. I mean, you guys have thousands of pieces of memorabilia, you know, bats. There's an entire row where there's just this whole section right near that uh, field inside where it's just jerseys among jerseys of Hall of Famers and icons of the game. I believe you have one of Hank Aaron when he was in the Negro Leagues. Um, and, you know, who, for those that don't know, Hank Aaron was actually, when he retired from Major League Baseball, he was the last active player who had played in the Negro Leagues. Um, and, you know, you guys got thousands of baseballs in there. And I think one part that my dad really was interested in um, was seeing um, the scene where Jackie Robinson is actually having a sort of that's that famous moment with Ben Chapman, um, mm-hmm. who had definitely said a few choice words about him when Jackie went to the major leagues. And for those that have seen the movie 42, we know pretty much what he said. Um, but the fact that you guys are able to have the original footage and everything of that moment. I love it. Um, So tell us a little bit more about, you know, especially because after the pandemic, you know, you guys took a hit with the pandemic. I mean, who didn't? Everybody did. Yeah, everybody did. Um, And, but you guys pushed through, you know, the museum pushed through stronger than ever. So tell us about how, the Negro league baseball museum is planning on expanding. Um, and you know, not just within the building, but outside of it. Yeah. And, and really that's the key. We are looking at an expansion project to restore the old Paseo YMCA. The Paseo YMCA is the birthplace of the Negro leagues. That's where the leagues were formed here in Kansas city in 1920, and it is literally right around the corner from where the museum operates. But that is also why a Negro Leagues Museum is rightfully in Kansas City, because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. And that is, again, where Rube Foster led a group of eight independent Black baseball team owners into the Paseo YMCA. And on February 13, 1920, they walked out having established 
the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. The Negro Leagues then would go on to operate for 40 years in this country and the building that it was all took place in still stands. And it's a national historic landmark and we own that property now and we're working diligently to restore it and then convert it into an education and research center in memory of the late great Buck O'Neill. And so thus it does start a really significant expansion opportunity for the museum for us to go basically full circle right back into the very building that gave birth to the story that we're now charged with preserving. That building was blighted and it was an eyesore and it unfortunately was harboring illicit activity. Vagrants were staying in that building. And, and so we took ownership of that building a number of years ago, started to clean it up, shore up its exterior, gutted the interior, and now working on a really fascinating interior redesign of that building, again, to convert it into an education and research center in memory of my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill. That's awesome. I And what is the, how do, how do I guess I word it? Now, how does this affect the taxpayers in the city, if at all? Not what at is, all. It's all privately funded. All privately funded. And how positive has the public support been for this? It's been tremendous. Uh, not only have people embraced the project, but we, when we started the early cleanup effort, there were people from the community going into the building, helping us clean up debris and move stuff. And, you know, and they've taken great ownership in this building. Uh, and the fact that it has the opportunity to be restored, you know, because so oftentimes in our country, we knock down buildings. We don't save them. Whereas yeah. other countries have a tendency to save their history from the standpoint of the buildings that were there for, you know, hundreds of years prior, we have a tendency in this country to knock them down. And, and we made the decision to save this building, to save it from the ruins of time. Uh, now, preservation projects are, are doubly expensive, but it was the right thing for us to do. You know, for me, the Purcell YMCA is one of the most significant Negro League artifacts in existence. You're talking about the building that the meeting took place in. And a lot of times people won't necessarily look at it from the standpoint that it is indeed an artifact. And that's kind of how I quantify it. And so, but I'm excited about the prospect of finishing this building, having it return to what it was when the YMCA, one of the earlier African-American YMCAs in the country, built in 1914, six, six years later, that historic meeting took place to start the Negro Leagues. And it was the primary meeting place for those in the African-American community. And, and we have grandiose plans to utilize it in many of the ways in which it was used back, you know, oh God, over a hundred years ago now. And so it's really exciting. How is, and I'm, yeah, it is definitely something I can totally see the public being all for from the, from the get go. And it's a great, 
attraction for Kansas City, but it's not, and it's a great piece of history. And for it to remain there in the 18th and Vine District um, is such a massive, uh, very well, much needed. Um, what else ha- are you guys, do you guys do any type of grants, scholarships, anything for the outward community uh, on top of what you guys do for the sake of the you museum? Know, most of ours is done through programming, public programming, a lot of school age programming. And most of our programming provides free admission to those who are particularly young people who are participating in those programs. And so that's one of the reasons why we're constantly fundraising so that we can make sure that urban children who sometimes don't necessarily always have the means necessary to pay full ticket price to come and see a cultural institution like the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, that they can always have access to it. And that's that's our commitment to the community in which we serve the immediate community, because we still operate in an urban community that is tremendously underserved. And we need to continue to make sure that people who are in our community have access to this museum. And that's been at the forefront of our existence from day one. We understand that we are a community leader uh, and in much in the way in which the Negro Leagues impacted the communities in which they serve, we have both a historical and civic and social obligation to do the exact same thing. And so we've continued to create programs and events that allow those who live, work, and play within the 18th and Vine community to have complete access to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And it's absolutely amazing. And if where would somebody you know, whether it be myself or anybody listening, if they wanted to donate um, anything to the museum, where would they go to? They can visit us on the World Wide Web at nlbm.com and uh, learn more about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, all the exciting things happening in and around the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And of course, make a tax deductible contribution to the Negro Leagues Museum, which we are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. And so we encourage everyone to consider making a contribution, becoming a member of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and if nothing else, make plans to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I already know I'm going to go back this year at least uh, at least twice. Like I, I could not tell you how much my dad and I enjoyed going there when we did the first time. It was something because I've always wanted to visit all the Hall of Fames, sports Hall of Fames. So to be able to go there, learn so much, you know, was one of the great pleasures I've had. Yeah. Um. So Bob, are you ready for a little bit of trivia? Yeah, man. I'm <laughs> terrible at trivia, but bring it on. All right, so here on Roundabout Sports, we are we are putting the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to the test. <laughs> All right, Bob, question number one. Who is considered the father of black baseball? That would be Andrew Root Foster, who again formed the Negro Leagues in 1920 in that meeting that took place there at the Paseo YMCA 
Rube Foster was not only a great executive uh, having established the Negro Leagues, but he also was a great player in the early era of black baseball. And Jeremy Rube Foster is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then it was Ooh. called a fadeaway and Rube perfected that pitch. So much so that the great major league manager, John McGraw, would sneak Rube Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. And folks, Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. But Foster, again, was best known as this visionary, this tremendous leader. He would organize the Negro Leagues. He would become president of the Negro Leagues. He owned the Chicago American Giants and he managed the Chicago American Giants. And you know what? Rube Foster would have gone into the Hall of Fame. He would have checked all three boxes. There's not very many that I'm aware of in baseball history that checks off all three boxes as a Hall of Famer, as a player, as a manager, and as an executive. That was the brilliance of Rube Foster, the father of black baseball. That is correct, and then some. And I had no idea about uh, Chrissy Mathewson learning the screwball from, uh, from Rube Foster. Foster. Now, see, that is something because, I mean, Chrissy Mathewson won well over 350 games, I believe. So mm -hmm. for the fact to learn it from the father of black baseball is outstanding. All right, now this one, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to have to step down as president if you don't get this right. I'm just telling you right now. Um, question two, which Negro League team did Jackie Robinson play for? Well, I'm glad you're giving me some softballs uh, because <laughs> we're working right now to restore, the, to restore Monarch Plaza at the site of Old Municipal Stadium which is where Jackie would make his home debut with the great Kansas City Monarchs, May 6, 1945. And honestly, about three months later, Jackie was gone. Yeah, Jackie was gone. By the time they got to the fall, Jackie had literally disappeared. His teammates had no idea where he was. Well, as we know, he had been summoned off to meet with Branch Rickey where Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson would orchestrate the move for him to become baseball's chosen one. The man that would break Major League Baseball's six decade long self-imposed color barrier. But you're right, it all began right here in Kansas City, 1945 with the great Kansas City Monarchs. And I tell people all the time, that short period of time that Jackie spent here in Kansas City Jeremy, he fell in love with everything that Kansas City is famous for, barbecue and jazz. He liked the ribs at a place called Old Kentuck Barbecue. Old Kentuck Barbecue would become the forerunner of the world-renowned Gates Barbecue chain of restaurants that are so famous here in Kansas City. And of course, he fell in love with jazz and New Orleans may lay claim to jazz but Kansas City gave jazz his soul. Oh, I, I love it. That is, you are 2-0, and oh, my friend. I love it. And yeah, you know, you the Monarchs are famous, one of, probably if not one of, if not the most not, famous yeah. 
uh, team in Negro Leagues baseball history. But yeah, when you think about it, yeah, Jackie Robinson was not there that long. No, um, no, he was there just for a brief period of time. And the interesting thing about Jackie's time with the Monarchs, had it not been for World War II, I'm not sure Jackie would have got invited to try out for the Monarchs. Because the Monarchs had lost so many players to World War II. Their rosters, their roster had been literally decimated by World War II. So Buck O'Neill is serving in the Navy, played first base there for the Monarchs. Um, Willard Brown, Hall of Famer, outfielder, he's in the Army. And uh, Ted Strong, for those who might be hearing that name for the first time, Ted Strong, well, think Dave Winfield, for those of you who are baseball fans. Ted Strong was Dave Winfield before we ever knew who Dave Winfield was. Freakish athlete, 6'7", 230 pounds, played every position except for pitcher and catcher. He was a 6'7", shortstop, had great power, speed, great arm, and when he wasn't playing baseball, he starred for the Harlem Globetrotters. That's the kind of athlete that we're talking about in Ted Strong. He was serving in the Navy. Hank Thompson, who holds the distinction of being the only player to integrate two major league teams. Hank Thompson was the first to play for the St. Louis Browns, and he was the first to take the field with the New York Giants. He was in the Army. So if the Monarchs have their full roster intact, it's highly unlikely that Jackie Robinson would have ever gotten invited to try out. And how would history have been altered? Yeah, we, it, 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 you know, it, it's one of those mysteries. You know, what if kind the of biggest scenario. what ifs? Uh huh. Awesome. All right. Question number three: Which team won the very first <laughs> Negro Leagues World Series? And they won it right on the corner of 22nd and Brooklyn. <laughs> and, and then the stadium was called Muleback Field. It would later, through various iterations, ultimately become Municipal Stadium. That would be the great 1924 Kansas City Monarchs. They won the inaugural Negro League World Series and led by the legendary Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan. And Bullet Joe Rogan, folks, is a name that you should know because Bullet Joe Rogan is one of the great two-way stars of the Negro Leagues. What I loved about last year and the show that Shohei Atani put on, you know, as this amazing two-way star, and folks were saying, well, we haven't seen that since Babe Ruth. It gave us an opportunity to say, oh, yeah, we have. And, and here are some guys who were legendary two-way stars. Well, Bullet Rogan was one of them. And Bullet Rogan when was a perennial 20-game, you know, 20-game winner. But when he wasn't pitching, he hit cleanup and played the outfield. Or as Satchel Page would say, invented Satchel Page vernacular that Bullet Rogan was the onlyest player he ever saw that pitched and hit in the cleanup position. Bullet Rogan was special. Bullet Rogan led the Negro Leagues in stolen bases, man, when he was 38 years old. He was a lifetime 300-plus hitter, 
And like I said, a perennial 20-game winner with great stuff. And he threw from a no-wind-up delivery. And, and yet his nickname is Bullet because he got it up there in a hurry. <laughs> that is awesome. All right, question number four. There, now this one, some a lot of people might get tricked by it, but let's see see if you get it. Who was the first black pitcher to win a World Series game in the majors? That was my friend, the great Joe Black. That is correct. <laughs> you were you were definitely thinking I had to think on about it for a minute though because. You know, I was like, oh, no, 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 Joe Black. 1952 Joe, Joe Black. in game one. Yeah. yeah, no, I got to know Mr. Black before he passed away. And Joe Black had been an outstanding player in the Negro Leagues who, as a rookie, uh, with the Dodgers, uh-huh, uh, wins and is the first to win a World Series game, first black pitcher to win a World Series game. That is absolutely phenomenal i know uh a lot of people would definitely think satchel page but nope good old joe black satchel on... didn't unfortunately satchel did not get to pitch in the world series in 1948 really uh and if he, he may have had one little short bout of relief and really they did the old man wrong because cleveland would not have gotten to the pennant had it not been for satchel when satchel comes over in 1948 Satchel didn't get there until July of 1948. Cleveland was losing the pennant. Satchel goes six and one. That short period that he was there with the with the tribe, uh, now of course the Cleveland Guardians, and helped them win the pennant. But they didn't pitch the old man in any really of any significance in any of those World Series games, or he likely would have been the first black pitcher to win a World Series game. All righty. Well, we are on question, our last question, question number five. All right. So here we go. Let's even get the clean sweep on this one, Bob. <laughs> Formed in 1885, which was the very first professional black baseball team? Oh, that had to be the, uh... oh, God, you're you testing an old man's memory now. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't old. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> uh, that was, oh, I'm thinking Page Fence Giants, but it's not the Page Fence Giants. It's the uh, the Pythians. That is incorrect. <laughs> the answer. Um, formed at the Argyle Hotel. A summer mm -hmm. resort in Babylon, New York, were the New York Cuban Giants. Giants. Oh, oh man, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> the first salaried African American baseball me, player. I knew it. <laughs> I'll give you half a point for at least thinking you knew <laughs> for just having it there. Um, that see, and honestly. Uh, that that's crazy. 1885. Though. 1885. Yeah. Like, and, um, you know, as black teams were starting to form and life was so haphazard for those teams and 
it did not have an organized structure, wouldn't get an organized structure until 1920, when Rube Foster organized the Negro Leagues and mirrored it right after Major League Baseball. And it worked out pretty well, you know. And look, so here is my probably my final question. This one, um, actually, I do got two more. I got two more questions because um, this has been absolutely phenomenal having you on, Bob. Um, so the first question I got, do you feel that you have a responsibility to help preserve the legacy of the Negro Leagues? Yeah, I inherited that responsibility. I didn't know from the onset. But yeah, no, all of us who work for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum have embraced the responsibility that is before us to preserve, celebrate, illuminate, and educate the general public about a piece of history, uh, about a piece of baseball and Americana that so many of us went through our formal educations without knowing. And we want to make sure and ensure that future generations not only have an opportunity to learn this story, because it has tremendously rich educational value. But to be honest, Jeremy, its inspirational value may be just as important perhaps even more important. And it's important that our children have a place where they can come and learn something that the moral majority of us never had an opportunity to learn. And like I said, hopefully they will be inspired by, as I like to say, the pride, the passion, the perseverance, the determination, the courage that they demonstrated in the face of adversity. And, and I remind people that our story is not necessarily about the adversity. Now we'll paint a picture for what life was like in this country during an era of American segregation for people of color. But our story really is about how they overcame the adversity. That's the real story. Uh, and, and that's the story that we want our young people to be introduced to, because I think as they are having challenges and trials and tribulations in their own life, they can draw strength for what others did to overcome adversity. And, and really, quite frankly, the players of the Negro Leagues, they never cried about the social injustice. Man, they went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you in the major leagues. Okay. I'll create my own league. And, and when you stop to think about that, that is the American way. Yeah, that is the American way. And that's why I say that the Negro Leagues, the story of the Negro Leagues, embodies the American spirit, unlike any story in the annals of American history. So even though America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And what's not to love about that story? Yeah, it's definitely one where you think so much, because when you hear about um, the baseball cover barrier, you hear about segregation in general, you know, a lot of things you're taught right away are i guess you can say the adversity you know 
but not so much how the response to the adversity, how you push forward. You just look a lot of times you're focused on what's keeping you back. But one thing that you are, I love that you guys showcase at the museum is how these ball players pushed forward. And, and I, and I love, and I think the perfect point was when you said, look, yeah, all right. You didn't get, you didn't, you're not letting us play in major league baseball. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure we'll have some exhibition games with you guys, but guess what? We got our own league over here and we're going to have a damn good time playing it. And, And the interesting thing about it is they built a league that was so good that they actually put themselves out of business. Yeah. It was so good that they put themselves out of business because at some point, Major League Baseball realized, hey, man, there's some talent over there, and we need to bring it into the fold. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the byproduct of that was that it put the Negro Leagues out of business. Yeah, and I was going to say, that was another thing. You know, People don't really realize why the Negro Leagues went out of business. It wasn't because of a lack of success. If anything, it was oh, too much success, success. <laughs> which, you know, in, in this day, you know, you wonder like, wait a minute, how is too much success a bad thing? Well, no, <laughs> no. then it was because Major League, yeah, oh, crap, wait, these guys are amazing at baseball. And, and, and you know, we've are, Branch Rickey's already brought in Jackie Robinson and, you know, Cleveland already has Larry Doby. So we, we got to got to mm-hmm. move forward. And. You know, it and yeah, that's that. I love that. It's like it is unfortunate how it went out of business, but the reason it did, yeah. it wasn't because the Negro Leagues were a failure. No, that's, no, it was and that's one thing I think. I think that's and, one thing that really has to get across to to yeah, younger generations. And, and in essence, the Negro Leagues became the sacrificial lamb for progress. Progress from a social standpoint. And we're reminded that progress always comes at a cost. And for many black businesses, it paid a dear cost for what others had deemed progress. But it moved us in ways socially that we never ever, I'm not sure we ever dreamt possible. And and so, but that progress absolutely came at a cost. It really, it it did. And so for my final question, um, you know, you guys at the museum have people of all generations, mm-hmm. all races, all religions. Um, just it's a melting pot of visitors. I believe you guys. Oh, gosh, I don't even know how many millions of visitors you guys get each year, but it's way up there. Um, now, we, we get a lot of people that are coming, you know, the last couple of years, like you mentioned early on, has been difficult. The pandemic certainly cut down the number of people who are were getting out and about for anything, no less going to museums and taking advantage of the cultural institutions. But as the pandemic, as we're kind of, is loosening its grip a little bit, people are getting out, they feel confident getting out again. And we're starting to see people start to make their way back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And hopefully some of the things that we have planned over the course of the year will enable us to see a an incredible increase. I, while I'm saying this, I, I want to tip my cap to my friends over at the Kansas City Royals and Royals Charities, who during the month of February made the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum completely free 
for any and everyone who wanted to visit. And I'm thrilled at over 7,000, almost 8,000 people in the month of February alone took advantage of that incredible offer. Um, it was a, an unprecedented offer and a tremendously generous gesture by my friends over at the Kansas City Royals and Royals Charities. You know, I yeah, I remember you were sharing with me for that how busy you were in February. It was crazy. <laughs> Just because you had to go out and about because, yeah, the whole month of February it was free. Yeah. So for somebody for the first time that would walk in there and say they knew nothing about the Negro Leagues, maybe they knew a bit about Jackie Robinson, but they did not know the stories, the the real adversity and the triumph and the progress. Um, and they go up to you and they ask, you know, what's the biggest thing they should know heading into this museum? What would you tell them? I would tell them that they are about to get a glimpse of America at her worst, but also America at her triumphant best. And, and that's the story that we, we shed light on. For those who sometimes think they're going to come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and be introduced to a sad, somber kind of story, got the wrong place. It's not that. It is a celebration. And it's a celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. Now, along this journey, you're going to meet some of the most incredibly talented athletes to ever put on a baseball uniform. And, and you'll oftentimes hear me describe them just as that great athletes who played baseball because they could have played any sport. But really, if you were going to make a living playing a professional team sport, you played baseball. Basketball, football were more or less still considered as collegiate sports. So right. the greatest athletes in the world played baseball. The greatest white athlete played baseball in the major leagues. The greatest black and brown athlete played baseball in the Negro Leagues. And so when you walk through there, you're going to meet some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. By the time you walk out, you're going to walk out with, I believe, to be an even greater, deeper, richer appreciation for just how great this country really is. I absolutely love it, Bob. I just want to thank you so much for being on. Um Kind of do one last plug about the Negro League uh, Baseball Museum. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, to find out more information or to support the Negro League Baseball Museum, please visit us on the World Wide Web at nlbm.com. If you're on social, you can follow me on Twitter at nlbmprez, P-R-E-Z, that same username on Instagram. The museum is nlbmuseumkc on both Twitter and Instagram. And so please, you can follow me in the museum, find out everything that's happening in and around the museum. And, and of course, check us out on nlbm.com. All right, and it's at the bottom of the screen at www.nlbm.com if you want to get more information. And Bob, you guys, you have done an outstanding job. The staff at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum has done an outstanding job. I want to thank you so much for being on this evening. You have taught me so much. I've heard so many amazing stories, and I look forward to when I go back down there and I get to meet you in person. So, well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it as well, Jeremy. Thanks again 
for having me on the show and helping us spread the word about this great museum and this incredible piece of history that we document. Absolutely. It is truly my pleasure. So Bob Kendrick, ladies and gentlemen, here on Roundabout Sports. Bob, you have yourself a wonderful night and stay well, okay? Okay, you too, young man. All right, thank you so much. I look, oh, yeah, I look forward to meeting him in person. I, I always love going down to the museum. Can't say enough positive words. Well, folks, speaking about getting a lot to say, I got our uh, lovely Interstate 70 Sports Media Insider, James Knox, getting ready to roll. I know he has been waiting so patiently. He's, But at the same time, I guess that also means he's got plenty of news to talk about. So, ladies and gentlemen, here from the I-70 Sports Media Studio in Kentucky, James Knox. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for uh, having me on. <clears throat> oh, my pleasure, James. How are you doing this evening, buddy? I'm doing well, but I kind of have a bone to pick with you. One, how am I supposed to follow that? And two, I don't even know what the second one was. I just, <laughs> I, yeah, that was, that was actually an amazing interview, Jeremy. That was, uh, that was fantastic. I've, I've always wanted to go. I haven't had the chance to go to the, the, the uh, Negro League Baseball Museum, but that's definitely a bucket list thing to do. So it was definitely one for me. I couldn't have enjoyed it anymore. And, but I'll tell you this much when I go again, I'm going to enjoy it. So, it's just always a treat to get to go out there. And and, I, and you know what? I may live in the St. Louis area, but I'm sorry. I got a lot of love for Kansas City. Mm. I mean, they got some fire-ass barbecue. And, <laughs> yes, there is so much history. I mean, you got – on one side, you got the Negro League Baseball Museum. And on the other side, you got the American Jazz Museum. Like, oh, man. that is the double jackpot of no, amazing, no. rich culture. Right for there. sure. No so, doubt. So, speaking of uh, rich – Albert Pujols just got a two and a half million dollar contract. Tell tell us a little bit more about the fact that uh, the machine is back with St. Louis. I'm going to pat myself on the back here a little bit. Go back to our show two weeks ago. I called this. You, I, you I, did. I gotta, he did, gotta, folks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. So I called it, but I was beginning to wonder if it was going to happen. Um, I think a lot of fans were like, let's do it for nostalgic reasons. I don't think the Cardinals do it for that reason. I think if Juan Yepes was just driving the ball and he really grabbed the the DH side from the right right side of the uh, box, you know, by the horns, Albert's not here. But you know, um, I'm glad he is. Um, it was kind of first of all, I love the fact that every time you have me on the show, something early something happens big earlier in the week, so it gives us something to talk about. Exactly. Um, That's why you're a great insider too. There's always something big to report about. Right, 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 right. Well, let's say sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Um, so <laughs> Pujol signs Pujol signs for one year, $2.5 million. He will be the, uh, I would imagine he would be the right-handed DH uh, complimenting Corey Dickerson from the left side. And uh, Pujol saw his first spring action with the Cardinals today and went one for three with a base hit. So, um, you know, I, I guess – my question for you, and, and I've had it posed to me, and, and I kind of have my own thoughts, so I'll ask you, do you think that Pujols gets more bats than what we initially think he will? I, you know, I think through the first two months of the season, it'll be just standard DH. I think it'll just be standard designated hitter spots. Um, and like you said, it'll complement Corey Dickerson, who's going to be taking care of it at the left-handers batter's box. Um, but depending on Pujols' production, 
you know, friend, uh, a dear friend of mine had pointed out to me today the batting stance that Pools has taken. He definitely looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to have a lot more pressure on his joints when he's swinging the bat. Um, and so I think time. this is definitely one of those instances of time will tell. Right. That's one of the few because, you know, Pools is going to be on this team through the end of the year. There's no ifs, right. ands, or buts about it. Right. It's just, and he's going to be the DH, one of the two DHs that we have. It's just, you know, that whole at-bat thing based on how he can stay productive. So here's my second question for you, and I'm going to put you on the spot. So oh, let, let's say it's September 29th, and Pujols has 19 home runs. He needs 21 to get the 700. You've got a week left in the season. You're two games up in the division over Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, I really, I told you I was putting you on the spot. How do you think Ali Marmol handles that? And what would you do? Because I, okay. you, I'll tell you what I would do here in a minute. All right. So there's three, there's three scenarios here. There's what you would do. There's what I would do. And there's what Ali Marmel would do. Okay. Um, What I would do, keep them going. I mean, you got, you're right there. And especially since I look at it where it's like Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record. Um, Because obviously Pujols is not going to get past Ruth, up past Aaron, unless like, maybe Babe Ruth, if he has an absolutely ungodly season. I think he gets, I think he gets to Babe Ruth if knock on wood. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt gets hurt. Yeah, because that would force a hand to get Pujols in there. Right. Um, But give me a healthy Goldie over a 42-year-old Pujols any day of the week at this point. Yeah, for sure. Um, sure. But no, I would keep Pujols in, especially given the fact, you know, you talk about even though the Cardinals don't do this type of thing for nostalgia, I mean, what were we talking about uh, just a few days ago? The fact that three of the last four games – of the season are at home at Bush. Right. And yep. what would be a, just add another outstanding moment in the history of St. Louis sports in St. Louis, which is Albert Pujols hitting his 700th home run. I mean, that right there is just because people let's, let's realize this. There are only three other players in the history of baseball <laughs> that have That's not 700 home runs. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I'm gonna say there's four others because Small guess what? You're you're gonna have Barry Bonds, you're gonna have Hank Aaron, you're gonna have Babe Ruth, but I'm putting Josh Gibson on there. If we're talking all of pro right. baseball, right, right, right. That's, um, hey, that's that's not a long time. That's a small sample size, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's only been like twenty nine thousand players. Other than that, yeah, just just a small fraction of it. But no, I would keep Pujols in. I think Ollie keeps them in too. I think Ollie keeps him in if that scenario, because one thing that you got to look at, and I know you have, is the fact that the Cardinals may have a rookie head coach, but they are a veteran team. This team is led by veteran players. Molina, just- Arenado, Goldie, um, Bueno, um, Pujols. 
So, now, I would say now you just you just added not only did you just add a a forty two year old slugger that can still kill left handed pitching, you also just added another instructor on that ball club. Yeah, that's the thing. Pujols is more. This is more than just having a you know a legendary figure on your team again to finish out his career. This is having a prime instructor. Like I'm, uh, if I am on this Cardinals team on this roster right now, I would be thanking God every night because the guys that I could learn from, you know, second to none, this is just right now learning from Melina Wainwright and Pujols on the same team at the same time at this point, knowing you're not getting this chance again, just mind blowing. What would you do, James? So I'm, I'm with you. Pujols plays. Um, but if I go into Pittsburgh, the last three games, the the series that was taken from the front of the season and put to the back, those last three games played at PNC Park, and I'm in a play, if I, I'm in a war, still trying to get a playoff spot, and Pujols has been struggling at the plate. I don't think he sees any plate appearances, and if I'm a manager, I can't, um, because. I mean, ultimately, we're here to win games. The good thing is, is obviously that last game of the season at Bush, uh, which is against the Pirates as well. That's before they take off for Pittsburgh. I think I'm going to have I'm going to set it up to where Wainwright, Yachty and Pujols are all in the lineup. Because, you know, obviously you want I mean. Regular season, the regular season finale of Bush, definitely different than, you know, playoff games at Bush or whatnot, because those are just. You may think it's your last game or it's not going to be your last game, and it could be. But nonetheless, I, yeah, I, I'm going to have him in the lineup as well uh, unless I'm getting into a spot where I've got a couple of tough right-handed pitchers on the mound and and he's struggled against them or the numbers say he has. Um, I'm also going to go with eye test. You know, if he – let's say – okay, here's an example. Opening day, let's, let, let's cheer for uh, Jose Quintana to be the starter – uh, on that opening day game, April 7th at Bush for the Pirates. He's a left-handed pitcher. You have Pools in the lineup with Wainwright and Yachty all on opening day. I mean, generally it's Willie McGee who gets the largest ovation on opening day. I, I don't think he gets it this year. I think it's going to be Pools. But it's just interesting. Ali Marmol had made a comment. This was, a, I guess, last week. I was watching the spring training game on uh, on Valley Sports, and they were talking to Dan McLaughlin and Brad Thompson were interviewing him. And Ali has come out and said numerous times that he likes the way the Giants did things last year where they have all right-handers or all lefties and can match up throughout the game. You know, you've got a, a tough lefty like Kershaw. Let's say Kershaw or, or uh, Urias for the Dodgers is on the mound. You could start with a right-handed, ultimately a right-handed lineup, and then they bring in a lefty later in the game or they've got a couple of lefties you're going to face. It's almost like a hockey line change. You start bringing in all of your left-handed hitters. And, and, and Ali said he really, you know, liked doing that in numbers. And of course the saber metrics and all of the, you know, the, the, the war and, you know, any, any other saber metric you can come up with. Uh, I like to call them nerd stats. Um, you know, they, they, they point to the matchup being favorable to do that. So, you know, I, I honestly, to be honest with you, I thought before they went and got Corey Dickerson, I really thought we were going to see a return of Matt Carpenter because you could have had the the left-handed, you know, 
platoon player, even though I, I think that name now that he signed with the Rangers is kind of sacrilege. Um, nobody wants Matt Carpenter back. But, you know, I, I think that's kind of how the Cardinals want to do things. And when you had the lefty DH option and Corey Dickerson, who can also play the outfield and give, give days off, you know, now you've got the right-handed supplement to that where if Goldie needs a day off, off of his feet and not playing defense, he can still be in the lineup as your DH, but Pools can play first base. Even though he's aged a little bit, his range is still there. And, and of course, he's one of the hardest workers, you know, day in and day out. That's where he got to be where he's at. So, I, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I know that we say it wouldn't be for nostalgia or putting butts in the seats, but I'll tell you what, um, if you thought it was hard to get a ticket to Bush Stadium before, have fun with that now. Yeah. And, I looked at I was looking at opening day tickets because I was like, even if I got in at the very top of the stadium, yeah, no. Those things like quadrupled in in, in prices on the secondary market once Pujols was uh was signed. Yeah, I'm just gonna say it right now. I have three tickets already booked for the October first game, so the Saturday yeah. night game. Right. Um, you know, we were talking and, you know, that was one of the ones where we felt that Wainwright and Molina would be, it'd be their last regular season start together. Yep. Um, I'm also trying to get a couple tickets for the Sunday game, the afternoon one. And yeah. Um, holy hell. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. let's, let's like, wait, put it to you this way. The cheapest is on vivid seats for example is $73 wow that is the cheapest on vivid seats i yeah i mean we're talking here i'm gonna i can quickly just look it up right now if you want to get it right alongside i mean we got ones here that are definitely in the 200s and the 300s um yeah it's just and the prices are going to fluctuate still so yep. we don't know for sure everything. Like we don't know when they'll get lowered or higher or whatnot. But we do know one thing that and don't and folks, let me tell you something. Don't get us wrong on this. Other games are definitely cheaper. Okay, like when they play the Orioles or something, you can still get an eight dollar ticket because nobody gives two craps about the Orioles. Let's face it. Um. So no, it's definitely where. Um, it's just these, this beginning of the season and end of the season are going to be unforgettable for ever. I had looked at, <clears throat> I looked at buying Cardinals Yankees tickets for the first weekend in August. Oh, uh, God. <clears throat> the, uh, right. Uh, so the, uh, the late father-in-law was, was a huge Yankees fan. Um, I mean, just, I've got, there is still hanging down here in the man cave, just signed pictures of Mattingly and Paul O'Neill and a big plaque of Mickey Mantle and like framed Yankees jerseys. And uh, so I was like, well, I was like, you know, a little bit of nostalgia for me there. So let's, you know, let's look at that. Yeah. I may have to uh, sell a limb or other appendages to be able to uh, see that series. But yeah. So um, I, I wanted to get into some thoughts to, um, of course, we could talk about Pujols all night, but looking at what the lineup would look like uh, for the Cardinals as we go into opening day, and, and I don't know how much you've been able to keep up with spring training, but we had talked uh, before about Tommy Edmond being the leadoff guy or getting the majority of the leadoff. 
uh, at-bats this year. Uh, Tommy is struggling mightily. He's one for 19 in spring training. Um, I just, you know, it's kind of it's kind of hard to imagine that I want uh, a batter. I mean, his defense is great, but it's hard to imagine that I want a hitter that's hitting well, well, well below the Mendoza line, even if it is spring training leading off uh, for me the majority of the time, uh, especially when Dylan Carlson is having a good spring. And uh, even Harrison Bader. Bader looks really good this spring. Uh, so uh, your thoughts, do we do we stick with Tommy Edmond? And, and we can kind of – we can kind of go throughout the lineup one to nine here uh, real quick, but your thoughts on Edmund. So is this is how I put the lineup as best as I can. And okay. I know I'll probably miss a spot here or there, um, but definitely for my first four. So my actually, no, we'll do my one through I'll actually just do as, as many as I can. We'll do it okay. until I can't. So All right. at my leadoff spot, I got uh, Dylan Carlson. Okay. Carlson Carlson has a chance for a real breakout year. You put him up there, and yeah, the, the pressure will be on him in a second year and everything, but I think he, he can manage. Okay. Edmund, you put him in the two spot. By putting him in the two spot, in my opinion, I feel that there will be – you know, there's that comfort. There's uh, there's that comfort. You know, that cushion for so, him. So my question for you is this: If you've got, let's say you've got a lefty on the mound, does that change who you have in the two hole? And I'll and I'll tell you why here in a minute. Yeah, it'll probably change who I have in the two hole, but um, I figure you. And it's hard to say when Edmund is literally one for nineteen in spring training. Right. But I've always, whenever. Um, I've put lineups together, whether it be, you know, with a rec team or hell just in baseball games. Um, I always want the guys that get on base first. I want the guys with the high on base percentages to kick it off. Then you get your heart of the order, which to me would be, you know, your Goldie, your Arenado, your Molina. Um, I would put them in there. And following that is where I'd put um, Bader. I put Bader after that heart of the order because you want a guy, you want some speed on there because right. you ain't going to get it with Molina, but you need no. some speed. On, no, so no, no, no. you need some speed on there. Okay. Um. So, and plus think of it like this. If the heart of the order goes down one, two, three, for example, um, who would lead off that inning? Bader. You know, Bader's is still a solid guy that you can alternate between the two. I can, you can put Bader in the two spot if you want and move Edmund down. I just feel that Carlson has to lead off. You need on base guys and guys that have decent speed. Pujols has to be at the bottom. He's got to be designated hitter, whether it's Dickerson or Pujols, but especially Pujols. I hate to say it, you know, because we all grew up with him being in the three or the four spot, but so, I, yeah. And that, and that's, and that's exactly why, I, why I asked if it depended on a righty or a lefty. So this is, this is where I would go. I, would uh, I'd have against the lefty Bader's leading off uh, okay. because he's, he's, he's bashed. He's kind of mashed against lefties. So I would go Bader, Goldie, Pujols, Arenado, 
O'Neal is in my top five. And then the young Molina. Um, and Edwin Edmund would be in the nine hole. So um, the reason being is be, because I, one, I, I could have the extra or the second leadoff hitter, if you will, um, speed wise. But it, it's kind of tough because you could put the young in the two hole as well, especially if he's. So let me preface that by saying if what we're seeing right now in spring training is legit, then he, you know, I would have him in the top of the order. But, you know, it's it's one of those things we've always talked about. De Young has been struggling. Goldie usually gets off to a, a slow start. Uh, De Young or Goldie, on the other hand, is I think he's eight for 14 in, in spring training. Not, not to mention and not to get too far off topic, but I think everybody in their mother in the majors and in AAA and in sections 110 down at Roger Dean's or down at uh, at the Nationals uh, game today for the spring training game between the Cardinals and Nationals had a hit and could have prob- probably driven in a run. Cardinals beat the Nationals today 29 to 8. Yeah, that was a bloodbath. Uh, Paul, Paul DeYoung, speaking of, drove in five runs um, and he's had a really, really good spring. Uh, and uh, so obviously, you're not looking at uh, Nolan Gorman playing in the middle infield. He was sent down today to minor league camp, and he's right. really struggled as well. They said that he. it seemed like every time he would come to the plate, he was trying to do too much. And me and you both know from being around the sport for a long time, playing the sport, being still being involved in it, The more, and it's the same as a golf swing. The more you try, the harder you try, the more you push as you, you know, are trying to attempt to get a good swing off, you're going to throw something out of whack your mechanics are gone and, and ultimately um, you're trying too hard and, and, and you, and you struggle even more. So um, it, it does look like it's going to be Edmund and DeYoung up the middle, but I, I just, I don't know what to make of Tommy Edmund. He kind of struggled near the end of last year. Um, and while, while his on-base percentage has been high, he's swung, man, he has swung at a lot of bad pitches in spring and, and his walk, his walk uh, ratios down too. So that kind of concerns me that maybe, um, uh, hopefully this doesn't affect his defense, but maybe Tommy Edmond was kind of a one-hit wonder. So um, I hope that's not the case because you ultimately, you know, let Colton one walk, Colton Wong walk. Say that five times fast. Uh, you know, to 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 keep Tommy Edmond and, and and go forth with him because it was his job. So um, you know, pitching rotation. I'm still concerned about. Uh, extremely concerned about not so much on the back end. Uh, Jordan Hicks looked great in his first action the other day uh, through primarily fastballs, hit 102 twice. Um, and he looks, he looks really sharp. I think he breaks camp and heads North with the Cardinals um, rotation wise is my concern. Obviously Flaherty, you know, we're not going to see him for at least a month. Alex Reyes may not be back until mid June, if at all this year, um, so you're looking at Wainwright, Dakota Hudson, Miles Michaelis, um, you know, Stephen Matz, who got beat up the other day, and then probably uh, a Drew Verhagen, who we made this joke two weeks ago that I guess I had to look him up too. He's had an exceptional spring, um, uh, and he's got a really live arm. His last start, he did give up a couple home runs, but you know, the, the one, the once famous and, and, you know, we'll live in St. Louis Cardinal lore forever. Bob Gibson says that's fine. Solo home runs won't kill you. So he, uh, he, 
Verhagen looked good too. So, uh, you know, Ali Marmol has made the comment that he's not sure he's going to go with a, a certain uh, closer. It may be closer by committee. You've got a lot of live arms down there if that's the case. You think about Hicks, you think about Gallegos. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I you you know, once you get Reyes back, plus you've got two guys in TJ, TJ McFarland and, and Ryan Helsley that can get you, uh, can get you ground balls. So, you know, the inherited runners percentage down last year was top notch, especially for McFarland, who uh, was more like Houdini and pitched himself out of pitched himself out of jams more often than not. So it, it's just that starting rotation. I think we need depth. They talked about going out and, uh, taking a look at maybe Sean Manaya from the A's or Frankie Montas and trying to make a deal, the A's counter with, well, if you want either one of those, then the first person we're going to bring up is Matthew Liberatore. And the Cardinals said, yeah, you can go chase yourself. Right. My, my last with my last question I got for you, James, and this involves the rotation because you've been keeping a big track on it. And I think the biggest thing is the fact that the injuries have taken their toll. Reyes and Flaherty specifically were supposed to be, you know, those core pieces for us. Because everybody's, you know, back, I guess to use another cliche, everybody and their mother knew what Adam Wainwright was going to do this year. He was going to be that solid, you know, stud that he always is. Um, So looking at the rotation now, the one you just gave me, and taking into account, let's say Reyes doesn't come back this year. Because honestly, I'm at the point of pulling the plug on the whole Alex Reyes experiment. Because every year we're at this point where, and I'm not saying injuries are his fault, but injuries are detrimental. And you can't base your future off a player that's always injured. And so what I want to ask you is, out of the guys that are in the rotation right now, and I'll give you the floor on this one, who do you think has the most pressure on their shoulders? Wow. 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 What a question. Boy, you waited to the very end to uh, hit me with that RKO out of nowhere. Um, so this is what I'll tell you. Um, looking at it and really, I'm going to say this. I can't believe I'm saying this. I wouldn't have said it three months ago. Almost wishes you, you almost wish you would have kept Carlos Martinez and let Alex Reyes walk. Um, so, the most pressure. So in reality, it's probably a Steven Matz who comes in, says he wants to be a workhorse, has the workhorse mentality. And because he's the acquisition who just signed the the huge extension, it's probably Steven Matz. Now, let's see how to put this. Um, the person who will put the most pressure on themselves will be Adam Wainwright. Wainwright, by the way, talking about chasing numbers and, and numerical stats is 16 wins away from 200, even though we all know that, or we all under the assumption that um, due to sabermetrics, the pitching wins don't matter anymore. Uh, they do to me. Uh, you're talking about, well, he's still around in the sixth inning and uh, he's got a chance to win a ball game. So <clears throat> ultimately you are not winning any kind of trophy without wins. Uh, Steven Matz, though, going back to him, the lefty, um, I would say he's the one that probably has the m- most pressure on him simply because he's the newest acquisition. He signed a big money extension and he has something to prove. Remember, he was injury riddled last year as well. He's bouncing back. Uh, Dakota Hudson has pressure on him as well. He came back last year for those two weeks. He looked great coming out of the bullpen. He wants to reestablish himself as well. 
Michaelis, this is, uh, you know, Michaelis has really struggled. He's thrown in nine games over the last two years. We know about his arm issues. Uh, but, you know, I would say Steven Matz, the lefty, he's the one that has the majority of the pressure on him going forward. Um, in the bullpen, I, you know, to kind of further it a little bit more, I would say it's got to be Geo. Uh, Geo was fantastic uh, last year, but near the end of the year, he started having his struggles as well. Uh, gave up a big time crucial home run in that Sunday afternoon game against Milwaukee, where the Cardinals were up by six runs and lost. Uh, you know, that kind of turned the was the turning point for the season right there that the Cardinals weren't going to win the division. So, you know, there's there's plenty of pressure to go around. I would say Jordan Hicks as well, since he's coming back from an injury and. Uh, you know, I could see him starting in the bullpen. I think they're going to have a schedule for him. And don't be surprised if by the time we get to the beginning of June, Jordan Hicks has not made a start this year. I I was looking at when you're talking about Steven Matz, the pitcher I feel that has the most pressure on themselves. First off, I totally agree with you when you said Wainwright will put the most pressure on himself. That's just a consummate professional that he is. That's just because right. he's a badass who has such a fiery competitive nature in him. So he yep. will definitely put the most pressure on himself and, you know, wins matter to me too. If he gets number, if he gets number 200, the same year that Pujols would get number 700 and let, and, and while I am, let me take just like five seconds here. You, to see you realize, you realize that those two things could happen in the same game too, right? That is very true. And you know what? Okay. This here's here's two other ones. <laughs> here's That's two other ones. Molina needs okay, two RBIs to get to 1000. He's going to yep. get that. But he so. also needs 20 ugh, 29 home runs to get to 200. I did not know that. So, Pool or Molina's at 171 home runs right now. He's he, he's really he's really hit that many home runs. Yeah, he's hit 171 home runs in his career. Wow. So we have a chance, folks. You know, in basketball, you have the triple-double. We got a chance to where Wainwright can get – I can't believe to think about this, James. Molina can get his 200th home run in the same game that Pools gets his 700th home run in the same game where Wainwright gets his 200th career win. The fact that this is possible just blows my mind. Like – um, but anyway, as far as the pitchers that I feel have the most pressure, it's Dakota Hudson. Dakota Hudson to me was always that, um, second, second mate to Jack Flaherty. You, you know, every pitching, every elite pitching duo, you got to have that one, two punch. Every pitching rotation needs a one, two punch. And people did not expect Wainwright to be this great, this late in his career, but he's done phenomenal. Um, so Flaherty, he's got to be this ace, but he's injured Wainwright. He's still going to be chewing out the innings. He's going to be the guy where, you know, that when he starts that day, the bullpen can take a little bit of rest and we that, but Dakota Hudson, he's coming off the Tommy John surgery. You know, he only pitched eight and two thirds innings all of last season. So he didn't pitch at all, um, in or from for almost an entire year. So right. from September of 2020 to September of 2021, he did not pitch and in a major league game. 
Then he he pitches eight and two thirds innings. I think, especially now that he's tw- he's twenty seven years old, he has a twenty four and ten record. You know, three point one four ERA. I mean, he's a solid guy, but he's in a position where he's surrounded by all these older pitchers and two injury riddled potential stars. So where he doesn't know where he is. Right. Let me get let me give you something to chew on here, because this is kind of amazing when you think about it. And for the last two, three years, we've we've been concerned with pitching depth. So let's look at the pitchers that the Cardinals have traded away in the last four or five years. Luke Weaver, which was a good trade because you got Goldschmidt, Zach Gallon, Sandy Alcantara, both to Florida or Miami, I guess, for Marcelo Zuna. So we're talking Gallon, Weaver, Alcantara. Right there. And then, you know, before we got to the point here where where everybody's hurt, Flaherty and Reyes were supposed to be the two young stud arms that were supposed to take you into the next, I guess, next run. You, you know, you were going to be the perennial playoff team with those two guys. So, but look at that. I mean, having – who wouldn't want to have Sandy Alcantara right now? Kids blowing 99 with an ungodly slider – a big-time curveball makes professional hitters look stupid. Flaherty, he can't stay healthy. Reyes can't stay healthy. And, you know, you look at the one injury where he punched the wall down in Memphis, you know, broke his hand and was done. Um, he was very immature at the time. Now, we all know what Reyes has been through with his daughter and family, and, and him being hurt is terrible. But you look at the depth that the Cardinals have traded and you could go to, I mean, it's almost like the Pirates with a guy like Jamison Tyon or Garrett Cole, where they were loaded and had all these young stud pitchers and let them go. That Marcel Ozuna trade, Ozuna was great for a little bit, but I'd love to have those pitchers back. You give me Gallon and Alcantara back over him any day, especially knowing what you know now, where it's hard to find, draft, and develop young arms. This isn't like a, a hitter where, you know, um, Either you have it or you don't. You know, there's so many different mechanics, and so the the mind the the mindset and the mentality is so different when it comes to pitching. Uh, you, you've got to be able to hoard that. It's almost like you know the Blues with, you know, making sure that they have young, good young forwards like that can carry the bucket going forward, like a Robert Thomas or a Jordan Cairo, or you know, looking at uh, other teams like football players. You know the Rams are a bad example because they got rid of all their draft picks, but looking at a team like Cincinnati that has taken those, those draft picks and those young players and built them up, you know, the Cardinals, they were just, they were, they were content and fine with trading those pitchers because, Oh, well, we need a big bat in Marcelo Zuna. We, that ended terribly. Hell, I, I've got some nine, 10 year olds that by the time it was over with could make a better throw than Ozuna and probably had stronger arms, you know? So, you look at it, and it's tough because now when Ali Marmol or, or Mike Maddox, they go to the cupboard to get that young pitcher to call him up from Memphis, he's not there. And, and Zach Thompson, the lefty out of Kentucky, they drafted uh, two years ago, I believe it was. Yep. Boy, is he yep. struggling. He can't. Boy, is he. He reminds me of Rick Ankiel near the the end of Ankiel's, uh, Ankiel's run. Yeah, he, he can't find the strike zone. I mean, he's – may not be able to hit the broad side of a barn. I mean, everything is his mechanics are off. He's not following through his curveball. He's not pulling down the lamp, sh- the, the lampshade. Um, so 
the Cardinals are going to have to develop. They're going to have to draft better. And look, I'm still at the the point where there are still some free agent pitchers out there. Uh, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to do something in the next week. Absolutely, because there is no time to just dilly-dally around and wait because I think the worst thing you can do, to me, um, doing nothing is just as bad as making bad moves. Right. Because when you're looking at the Cardinals, and, I, and I'm going to add another pitcher in there, uh, Marco Gonzalez. Ah, I knew I was forgetting one. There, There's another one, Marco Gonzalez. We did get Tyler O'Neill for him, though. Right, but at the same time, oh, I see what I you're mean, yeah, right, and that's that's kind of that. Um, you know, it's the thing with like Luke Weaver. You end up getting Goldie, so it's like. Right. But at the same time, um, the Marcel Ozuna experiment was a total bust. It was a total bust. Right. It it blew up right in our face, and you know, the and Cardinals the can. That yeah, that's the one that really hurts the ones that blow up right back in your face. And if you are the Cardinals, you're absolutely right, James. They have one week to make a move. It doesn't even have to be this big historic blockbuster move. It just needs to be a move where, hell, here's a guy. He's 32 years old. He's played, you know, he's pitched consecutively in all these seasons. He'll be the solid guy to fill in while Flaherty's out. You just need somebody that you can trust in there. And right now in that rotation, the only guy I can trust to consistently stick through it is Adam Wainwright. Right. And that's I think the only one I trust. And you're right. When you, when you said it doesn't have to be a big signing, like look, go out and I mean, hell, why not pick up the phone and call J.A. Hap? Hap had a good season. That, last yes. Year. They should season have brought one. Hap. They should have brought back Hap. I was a fan. Of, I liked the rotation that the Cardinals had going for them at the end of last season. Given the circumstances, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like, I mean, you got Hap, who is 38, 39. You had Lester, you know, and I know he's retired now, but he filled in great. I mean, you had Wainwright, who was pitching like a Cy Young pitcher would. I mean, these guys had one hell of a final stretch of the season. And now you're coming in with basically the remnants of the injured reserve squad and Adam Wainwright. (laughs) So, right. So yeah, they got a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it. So you know how they scored 29 runs today. They might have to do that more often because I don't see them having, I don't see them winning many games where they score three or less. No, you're right. And look, the J the J Hab deal. I, I'd go out. I mean, he, one he's going to give you innings. He's not mm-hmm. maybe one year at the the major league minimum, which is what seven hundred grand now. That that's the thing. Go out and make the deal. I mean, you know, because it, the during during that seventeen game winning streak last year, Hap went three and zero with an ERA under two. I mean, he he may not be able to blow. He he's similar to Zach Greinke. He's not going to overpower you. He's not going to blow you away, but he's crafty enough to make he's, – he's crafty enough to where you end up getting yourself out instead of him having to do it. He is a thinking and man's you know, pitcher. And you know what? Zach Greinke, he's starting opening day for the Royals. So I saw guess that. what? And Hap would be perfect for the Cardinals. Get him in there because, I mean, we already know, you know, like who's starting opening day pretty much. But at the same time, you need 
to get some consistent arms in that rotation. And you don't have that. You just don't. And I'm sorry, but this division, I've said this on the show. I said it to you two weeks ago. Um, The discrepancy between the division where the top teams and the bottom teams are is very vast. It's a very big difference. So you got the Reds and the Pirates down here. Um, but you got the Cubs, uh, Brewers and Cardinals here. Yep. The thing, uh, and the thing of it is actually, you know what? Screw it. I'll put the Cubs. Honestly, I'm going to probably put them back at the bottom. I'll switch them in the reds. Um, because the Cubs have just, I don't know. Cause the Cubs have kind of just said by squad and got rid of everybody. <laughs> the reds didn't really have anybody to get rid of. Um, so I hate I hate everything about Chicago. I hate the Blackhawks. I hate the Cubs. I, I hate God. Blech. But don't don't sleep on the Cubs. I, I just I have this feeling that I don't know. It's it's that thing where they haven't done anything. I mean, not anything of any. They did sign the Japanese outfielder. They went and made that international signing. They haven't done anything that blows you away or knocks your socks off, but it's always that team that well, watch. Well, in this, in the division this year, maybe the Reds, hell they sold everybody. They got rid of everybody. So it, may be, it could be the Reds as opposed to the Cubs. Like, you know, I, I, mean, I just know that the Cardinals cannot afford to just not do anything. They need to do something. I, when I said it two weeks ago, I, I, and I still stand by it. You're content with getting to October, but you've got to make the move to where you win in October. That, you know, couldn't sum it up any better. And that's something that the ownership needs to start really thinking about because, you know, yeah, you're you're always going to have millions of fans in attendance. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of merch and revenue and everything. But at the same time, I'm, if anything, I, if anything, I'm, go out, go go out and make that move. And, and I apologize for cutting you off. Go out and make that move, because you owe it to Yachty, Wayno, and Pools to make that move. Right. No, absolutely. It's their last year. And a fired up. <laughs> no, it's fine. I welcome it. Um, <laughs> I just know that, um, especially with this season, a lot of fans are frustrated. Look. Let's put it this way. Say the Cardinals make the playoffs 20 years in a row. And out of those 20 years, they come away with one World Series. I would be hurt because guess what? It's great that they make the playoffs, but guess what? At the same time, what's the point if you're just going to lose? Like, honestly, they right now, the Cardinals are being the equivalent of the Green Bay Packers. Ooh. Like a team that right. is a, a very t- a top tier team with all the talent in the world, but when it comes to the big playoffs, when it comes to the big time, they're just not getting it done. That's just in the recent years. Now, the- do I think they have the talent to? Of course I do. Of course I believe in this team. I believe this team can win the World Series, but well- they need to prove it. And that starts. That doesn't start with the players. That starts with the upper management. Right. 
Well, and here's the thing. Just, I mean, they're the equivalent of the St. Louis Blues. The Blues made the playoffs 24 years in a row and got bounced in the first round to the point where anytime they made the playoffs, the fans are like, ah, first round and we're done. I mean, that's that's really what it is. And you're right. And, and it was the same back then when you had Larry Plow and those guys running the, the, thing, the show for the Blues. It's the same here. Now, I like John Mazzea. Like, you've had one losing season since he's been the general manager slash uh, president of baseball operations. But it's and – and I understand he's told who he can go after and who he doesn't. He's – you know, he's got a – there's a, a restrictor plate on what he can spend. I get that. But if I'm – if I'm John Mazalek, I'd uh, go to the DeWitts. Look, we need this guy, or we need another piece, or we need a pitcher, or we need beforehand we needed a DH, or we needed a shortstop, or or whatever else. And like you're, and this, I just thought of something. Just light bulb just went off. And maybe Jeremy, they're sitting on their hands, knowing that next year they're going to have to replace Wayno Yachty and Pools. Maybe they're just like, look. We can't go out and make that move now. We don't want to spend the money to do this now because we know next year we're going to have to go out and most likely get an ace. We're going to have to get a starting catcher. Uh, Yvonne Herrera looks good, but he still is having some issues catching-wise. Mechanically, he will take pitches out of the strike zone. Andrew Kisner does that quite a bit. There is a, a catching prospect down in double A who looks good and very well may be the heir apparent because he's the better of the two defensive catchers. However, if we do have this stupid ass robotic umpire stuff, I guess it's not really going to matter how good your catcher is if he can frame it because it's not going to matter. And that's going to take, you know, that that out of the equivalent. Maybe just say, well, whatever prospect I have, that's my best offensive catcher is the heir apparent. But nonetheless, I mean, the Cardinals may just be waiting, knowing, hey, we're going to have to replace those three players next year. They're probably going to look at long-term deals with Tyler O'Neill and Harrison Bader. Um, but I was really kind of upset that, you know, you had, what, $30 million come off the books this year with Matt Carpenter gone, Dexter Fowler gone, Mike Leake's deal finally where the there's no more dead money on that. And they, they didn't go out and spend any other than on Steven Matz Corey Dickerson and Albert Pools, and you still have a good chunk of that $30 million left. Yeah, you really do. And there's, you know, only a week left to spend it on really the talent pool that's out there. Um, right. So, and James, I know you'll be keeping uh, plenty of track on that and keeping folks on I 70 Sports Media informed on it. Tomorrow night, uh, I plan on at seven o'clock doing a major league baseball prediction show. Uh, I haven't been able, I haven't done a whole lot of episodes of Knox's corner lately, just because I've been busy with being on the field myself, but uh, seven o'clock tomorrow night, we are going to do the MLB prediction show where we'll predict the winners of the divisions, the wild cards, and then the major awards like Cy Young MVP and uh, kind of break down some more uh, on the Cardinals. They play the Marlins tomorrow night at five 30. So we'll have updates from that as well. And I look forward to seeing that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, James Knox, I-70 Sports Media Insider. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time for the MLB Prediction Show. I will talk to you later, James. You have yourself a wonderful night. You as well, Jeremy. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. So before we go, folks, there is one more thing I got to take care of, and I can't believe I'm doing this, but I am and I have because I told him I would. So, okay, for those who don't know, I'm a fan of the Cleveland Browns, which means, by law, I despise the Pittsburgh Steelers. 
And my friend, Andrew, decided to take it upon himself to get me some sports cards. And, you know, for those that don't know, I have about, oh gosh, well over 45,000, maybe over 50,000 sports cards. Well, and, and I can't believe this. Like, so here we go. This is the only card of it that exists. This is a one of one. And this is the only card in it of its kind. It is a Ben Roethlisberger game used card. I am I'm surprised my skin is not burning holding this plastic piece of shit. I am telling you right now, it is driving me up the wall. He gave this to me nothing but a few hours ago, and I I thanked him. I appreciated it, but I died inside just a little, just just a tad. Because that's, you know, how it is. That's part of the rules about being a Browns fan, disliking the Steelers. Nevertheless, I do want to plug his book. It was, it's called I Was Born to Do. It's by Andrew Dew Henson, D-E-W. You can find it on Amazon or on Barnes & Noble's website. I am thankful to have a copy. Um, and it's, it's a poetry book. It has a lot of great stories, poems. It's definitely... A worthwhile read. It'll pull at your heartstrings. I'll tell you that right now. But it's called I Was Born to Do. And like I said, you can find it on Amazon and on um, Barnes & Noble's website. And hopefully you get a copy. And if you get it, you enjoy it. And you'll be thankful to know that there is no crappy Pittsburgh Steelers cards in there. So there's that. So with that, I want to thank Bob Kendrick for being on today. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with him. And, of course, I always want to thank James Knox, who's a phenomenal insider, um, journalist, you know, podcaster. And like I said, be sure to tune in tomorrow night, 7 o'clock Central, um, right here on the Interstate 70 Sports Media page, where James will be talking all things for Major League Baseball this upcoming season. Who knows? There's some surprises I probably don't even know about that are going to happen. So with that, before we close, I always have to, as customary, put at the bottom of our screen the National Suicide Hotline. I put it on here every week because suicide is suicide awareness is, is something that means a lot to me. I think there needs to be more awareness out there. It's The number is 1-800-273-8255. It is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 366 days a year on the week, on the uh, leap years. I almost said on the week years. No. Um, I want you to understand you are never alone. You are always loved. There's always someone out there who will listen to you, talk to you. Um, and, you know, there's just so much more in this world. We just need a lot more love in the world that we live in today. And next week, we have a special surprise. Well, it's not really a surprise. Next week, we plan on having on our show um, Joe Pot from KMOX. So works with the St. Louis Cardinals. He's coming back for his fourth season with broadcasting, and I look forward to it, to having him on. So until then, folks, always remember, life is a book full of empty pages just waiting to be written in. Make your lives worth reading.
This is Jeremy Carp saying goodnight.